I'm Drew Catt, EdChoice's Director of State Research and Policy Analysis. Today, I'm chatting with Lindsay Burke and Jason Bedrick, co-authors of our latest report, Personalizing Education, How Florida Families Use Education Savings Accounts. Lindsay is not just a PhD candidate at George Mason University, but she also serves as the Director of the Heritage Foundation's Center for Education Policy and as an EdChoice Fellow. And Jason is EdChoice's Director of Policy. Welcome to the show, y'all. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having us. So to start off, tell us about this study. What did you set out to learn, and how did you go about gathering and analyzing the data? Well, we really wanted to figure out how Florida families were using their education savings accounts, which in Florida, and Florida was the second state to adopt an ESA model. In Florida, they refer to it as the Gardner Scholarship Account. So we've seen ESA options start to increase in popularity across the country. We now have six states with ESAs. But the critical question for us was, how are families actually using these accounts? How are they leveraging the unique facets of ESAs? Are they customizing their children's education with the flexibility that ESAs provide? And so we had all of these questions about how families are actually engaging with the accounts, which is what we sought out to, to figure out. And so we reached out to the administrative entity, uh, the nonprofit Step Up for Students, who works to administer Florida's ESA option. and. They were kind enough to, to work with us to get us the data that we needed to really be able to understand the parent experience with their ESAs in Florida. Excellent. So before we delve deeper, uh, share with us some of the top findings. Sure. Well, uh, we looked at the program over two years, the 2014-2015 school year and the 2015-2016 school year. Uh, during the first of the two years, we had about 1,500 students participating in the program, uh, and there was about uh, $8.4 million used in ESA funds by those students. Uh, in the second year of the program, it grew considerably from about 1,500 students to just under 5,000 students, uh, spending about uh, $31.4 million. So there was a really tremendous growth between those two years. Uh, what we did is we divided the um, ESA students into a few different categories. Uh, first, customizers or non-customizers. So uh, some of the students used the ESA like a traditional voucher. So they, they only use the ESA funds for private school tuition. Um, uh, other families use the ESA to customize their child's education in one of two different ways. Either what we call augmented tuition users, so those are families that sent their child to a traditional brick and mortar school, but also uh, were spending money outside of, of that classroom. So on things like uh, tutoring, textbooks, homeschool curricula, online learning, educational therapy, etc. Uh, and then the last category of students we call the independent customizers. So those are the families that uh, didn't send their child to a traditional brick and mortar school at all. They entirely customized uh, their child's education. Uh, so more than a third of the ESA families used their funds to customize their child's education. And of those customizing families, uh, more than half were uh, 
were independent customizers that, that weren't using uh, traditional brick and mortar classrooms. So we did find a, a significant degree of customization in Florida. Yeah, that's fascinating, especially the breakdown between the, what did you say, Jason, the augmented tuition users versus the pure customizers? Yes, and it was, it was about 50-50 both years, but slightly leaning toward independent customizers. Uh, now, it should be noted again that this is a population of students with special needs, so this might not be generalizable to a general population. If, if say, you were to enact a universal ESA, there might be lower levels of customization, uh, but still a very significant degree of customization. And we found that actually between the two years, the amount of customization actually slightly increased. Oh. Yeah, and if I could just add on to that. So what we wanted to really figure out with this study was, yes, families appear to be customizing on the surface, but are they really, really customizing? Because, you know, you could, you could imagine a family who largely used their ESA to pay private school tuition, but then maybe they also bought a textbook for their kid. So that would have, had we not delved deeper into the data, lumped them into the customizer category when really, as Jason described it, they're just sort of augmenting their tuition with some additional options. So that's why we then sort of parsed out that data a little bit more. And the way that we did that was we dropped out the families from our data set who used any brick and mortar school at all. And so when we're talking about customizers who are truly a la carte, tailor-made ESA users, those are families whose children did not set foot in a brick and mortar school at all. They used their ESA, maybe they hired a private tutor, maybe they did an online course, uh, bought some textbooks and curricula. So they really crafted a perfectly tailored education option for their child. And that's why it was so exciting to see that of those customizing families, about half of them use their ESA that way. Yeah, that's great. And Lindsay, as you previously mentioned, uh, Arizona's ESA program was the first in the nation. Uh, and you both have studied that program extensively as well. So how does Florida's ESA compare to Arizona's in terms of this study's focus? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And that was uh, another reason why we wanted to study Florida was we wanted to know, was Arizona a unique phenomenon? Uh, because in Arizona, the data that we had there also suggested a relatively high proportion over a two-year period from between a quarter and a third of families who were using their ESAs to customize. So we wanted to know, is that just Arizona, or do we see it uh, in different locations across the country in different time periods? And indeed, we did in Florida. And so what that suggests to us, that you've got about a third of families in Arizona, a little more than that in Florida, who are truly customizing their children's education using their ESA, that suggests to us that ESAs over time with different populations and different locations retain their unique features that you can roll over, that you can uh, direct every dollar, and that the way families use them are in fact distinct from how a family uses a traditional school voucher option, which is a great option, um, but we can see over time that ESAs retain their unique features, uh, families use those unique features uh, in a way that really benefits their children, and that ESAs don't really, for lack of a better term, become vouchers over time. Yeah, so Lindsay, that's uh, interesting that you say that, because 
I've heard some critics say that ESAs are just vouchers in disguise. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so how would either of you react to someone who might use your study to support that claim since, as you said, the majority of ESA users do use their funds much like a traditional voucher to pay for the private school tuition? Well, I, I would challenge any skeptic of either ESAs or vouchers for that matter, which, by the way, vouchers, tax credits, these are all great options that empower parents to find learning uh, options that really work for their children. <laughs> so, you know, I um, just the, the idea that somehow this is still a dirty word in 2018 is really laughable. But I would challenge anyone to use a voucher to hire a private tutor or to be able to roll over their voucher funds from year to year if they haven't used them all. I mean, they are completely distinct from an ESA model, and the courts have said as much as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's clear from our research, from the data that's out there, from legal precedent, that ESAs are distinct, that families use them in a distinct way from a traditional school voucher option. But all that still doesn't render vouchers a, um, a bad policy choice. They're an excellent policy choice for states across the country, along with every other education choice mechanism that's currently on the table today. Right, I mean, imagine somebody saying that uh, Social Security, uh, because, you know, let's say a study found that uh, two-thirds of Social Security funds were used to pay rent. And then somebody came along and said, oh, well, it's no different from Section 8, so we should just, you know, get rid of it and just implement Section 8 housing vouchers. Uh, no, I don't think that's, that's the right approach because you still have that one-third of families that are doing something different with it, and that's, that's important to them. Uh, a voucher is a coupon. You know, if you have a $5,000 voucher, you can redeem that at, at one place at one time and only at a, you know, uh, a traditional brick-and-mortar school. The ESA is a restricted but flexible use bank account. Uh, so you've got a, a much wider variety of options. Now, if it's, it's at the current moment, two thirds of families are satisfied going to a private school and they believe that they're getting, uh, you know, it's a one-stop shop for all their child's educational needs. I think that's great. Uh, but we have to be cognizant of the fact that there are, are a third of families. And actually in the second year, it was closer to 40% of families that wanted something outside of the traditional classroom. And so if, if our education system is truly designed to find the right fit for all children, uh, then we wanna make sure that those families that need something beyond the traditional classroom have access to it. Yeah, and that's wonderful. So if you are a school choice advocate looking to say expand or pass new ESA programs in other states, what is most important for you to know, and how can you use this study? Yeah, I think to me, one of the most important takeaways from this study is for state policymakers, for folks who are on the ground working to advance ESAs in the states, to make the allowable uses as broad as possible for families. Because we can see from the evidence that families really do value the unique ability of ESAs to be able to, to purchase multiple education services and products and providers. And we really have no idea how families might use them moving forward. Families are going to come up with creative ways to meet the needs of their children's unique uh, learning needs. And so keeping that as open as possible uh, in terms of what the allowable uses are, I think is critically important for the success of these options moving forward. 
right? This is really about building a, a new market, right? Uh, changing the funding formula is going to change how we can deliver education. And right now, most families uh, get their child's education at a school. But I could conceive of a day, uh, because of the, the flexibility afforded by ESAs, that you have more educational entrepreneurs entering this area, specializing in uh, discrete aspects of education. And just like uh, the newspaper industry and other industries have had sort of an unbundling of the services they provide, you could, you could see a future where there's an unbundling of the services that a school provides, where children might go to, say, an education mall, and they're going to different providers to get their math instruction and their English language or foreign language instruction and so on and so forth, and completely customizing their child's education as opposed to going to a particular school where every single subject is uh, you know, controlled by one central administration. So we could see a future where there's a much greater, uh, much greater uh, specialization and uh, customization on the part of families. Yeah, and that's wonderful. Uh, so anything that either of you would like to add before we sign off? I mean, right now there are a whole bunch of states that are considering ESAs. Uh, in New Hampshire and Mississippi, you already have ESA bills that are moving forward through the legislature this year. Uh, in Missouri, they have a tax credit funded ESA that uh, just passed their government reform committee. And then there's a bunch of other states that I know of that are consider considering some form of education savings accounts. I think it's very important for the lawmakers in these states to uh, study the research, uh, look at uh, the experience that uh, Arizona and Florida and other states that are already implementing these ESAs have had and learn from those lessons as they develop their own educational choice programs. Ah. Well, that's all she wrote on this episode. Thank you to our listeners for joining us for another EdChoice Chat. And please, don't forget to subscribe to our podcasts for more of our coverage of new school choice research. Until next time, take care. Thank <laughs> you.